This podcast comes to you from the Plant Biosecurity Research Initiative. For more information on PBRI, visit www.pbri.com.au. If the overseas experience has taught us, one thing is certain. Fall armyworm will continue to spread, only limited by temperature and food source. In the more tropical parts of northern Australia, fall armyworm has taken up residence, at least since early this year. But we're yet to see just how far south they'll spread. But now we have some valuable first-hand experience with dealing with the pest, and it's great to have two highly respected agronomists join me today, Paul McIntosh, who spreads his time nowadays between Pulse Australia and the Australian Herbicide Resistance Initiative, and Brent Wilson, a senior account manager for Landmark up on the Burdekin in northern Queensland. Brent, I'll start with you. Tell me about your experience with fall armyworm. What did you see first earlier in 2020 and how have you managed it in the time since? So basically, once we heard that the, uh, the fall armyworm had been located in you know, in Australia and that sort of thing, we started scouting corn crops and that within the Burdekin region um, extra, extra um, closely. So, you know, when we were looking for the fall armyworm and there was quite a few false starts and we were in constant contact with Hugh Bry and also Melina Miles. And then we finally did stumble across some fall armyworm patches in some corn located in the Burdekin there on the home hill side of the river. And there was very, very patchy to start with. What we found or how we discovered it, we were walking through the crop there and I noticed this windowing type effect on the leaves where the top surface of the leaf had been chewed down to the middle of the leaf blade there and and it hadn't actually pierced all the way through the leaf and it was in a square type and rectangular shape which was quite strange and I hadn't seen that sort of feeding effect before. So we started looking at those individual plants a lot closer and then that's when we started pulling out fall armyworm larvae out of the whirl. So that feeding pattern, that windowing or etching effect is symptomatic of the neonates before they entrench themselves in the whirl. So initially from that first incursion we found it was quite evident that the numbers in that were relatively low and at that stage there was no permits available for any decent insecticides in corn so we were still dealing with largely contact or ingested insecticides like methamol and clopyrifos in in synthetic pyrethroids in corn so we knew from discussions with melina miles and also hugh bry that it was highly unlikely that those insecticides would offer any any sort of efficacy against fall armyworm especially fall armyworm entrenched in their world so we waited and waited and waited until the permit was available to us and we did spray and, and at that stage the numbers were starting to build but still very very erratic through the paddock and in hindsight you know we probably didn't need to spray but the farmer he was adamant that he wanted to spray so we did spray and we've subsequently we've harvested that crop and it was yielding around that sort of nine to ten ton per hectare on relatively light soils under pivots so given that that aspect you know it was very close to our yield targets anyway so and given the low numbers of fall armyworm in the crop we thought that there wasn't much of a loss there at, at all and subsequently another client planted a crop of white corn up river further on the home hill side of the river again and when it came time 
to in inspect that crop during that reproductive phase, during that silking and tasseling stage, we were predominantly checking the top of the cobs, the silks and that sort of thing, um, as we would typically for helicoverpa activity. And there's very little helicoverpa activity and also very little fall armyworm activity. Whilst there was quite a lot of fall armyworm activity in the vegetative stage of that crop, we didn't spray it and we wanted to see what would happen and that sort of thing. And once again, the numbers were relatively low. And with a high, well-fertilised, quickly-growing irrigated crop of corn, you know, it can grow away from low-level damage quite easily. So anyway, we got into that reproductive phase and we were checking the silks in the top of the, the cobs and that's when we found a little bit of helicoverpa activity and fall armyworm activity and the numbers were very, very low. So the farmer and I thought, you know, job well done. And anyway, one day we were walking through the crop there and I noticed quite a bit of frass there around the cob leaf or the tender leaf there. And, and I thought that was strange because there was no subsequent damage in the top of the cob and the silks were perfectly fine. They were still quite active. I'm still pollinating at that stage. So I thought, yeah, where's all this frass coming from? And then looked along a little bit further and that sort of thing. And similar things were happening on, on other cobs as well. It was quite noticeable, a lot of frass around that cob leaf no subsequent damage in the top of the cob there or the or the silks. So anyway, pulled the cob leaf away and about three inches below the top of the leaf there where it sits quite snugly against the base of the cob there, you can see a hole there in the, in the base of the cob there and opening that up further with a pocket knife, here's this huge big fall armyworm larvae and sort of a, a medium to a medium large grub and he was well entrenched in the cob. So then Subsequently, we started pulling all the cob leaves off and basically we had about 70% of the cobs had fall armyworm entrenched in the side in the base there. And so that's a feeding site that is seems to be peculiar to fall armyworm and because we just don't find Helicoverpa in that sort of location. Predominantly, they are a tip feeder or a silk feeder and sometimes you'll get them or they will crawl down the outside of the cob and sort of burrow in about three quarters of the way down or you know sort of in the center or a little bit further down the cob on the side but not behind the, the actual cob leaf itself so a very very protected feeding site and then what I was most worried about was apart from the damage that was occurring was that there was no way we were going to be able to get in an insecticide down around that cob level with the gear that we had whether it be an aeroplane or and we didn't have a high clearance spray that would facilitate getting over the top of the of the crop without significant damage but also I was worried about you know issues around rainfall and that sort of thing and moisture getting into that wound at the base of the cob there and getting secondary infections and cob rots and which is subsequently what happened and typically whilst we have a, a relatively dry winter up here this year we've we've had around sort of seven inches of rain and that during our inverted commas winter period and so then quite a bit of moisture has got into those cobs through that previous or old wound from the fall armyworm and there is quite a lot of cob rotting mm. in that there mm. and the yields at the moment are only around that sort of six to seven tonne to the hectare at the moment which is you know a, a sort of a 30 to 40 percent yield reduction on what we budgeted on and what we've previously grown before pre-fall armyworm so ignoring fall armyworm is not a viable strategy and that has been a strategy that some countries have used and it has come to play that that's not the correct strategy and certainly seeing the damage plus the secondary infection from the weather damage of cob rots the damage has been quite high. And Brett, have you noticed over that time the, an increase in the sheer numbers of fall armyworm? From that initial period of time, we did get a, a steady build in the numbers and that sort of thing. And, and then it wasn't until we started putting out some pheromone traps and 
really starting to monitor the moth flights and, and seeing the changes in the, in the weekly numbers. And then as we planted the main corn crop, the numbers, there was certainly, you know, they didn't explode straight away, but they, they were steadily building. And then about four weeks ago, we probably had our, our biggest spike in numbers, in moth numbers through the pheromone traps. But that hasn't really correlated with what we've been seeing in the paddock. So even though we're in the recent times, we've had a lull in the numbers in the pheromone traps, we're actually seeing probably higher numbers out there in the paddock because there's a lot of corn out there and we're seeing some quite high concentrations of larvae activity in, in the corn crops, especially very young corn. It seems to be highly attractive to the moss, more so than the older corn. So that might just be an aspect of large numbers of acres of corn and, and various maturity phases. So they've got you know, a lot of young corn to choose from. So it'd be interesting to see what happens as that the younger corn that's there now, the later plantings, as they start to mature, whether the, the moss essentially got nowhere else to go as far as young corn goes, whether they start hammering that older maturing corn. Paul, in the absence of our own thresholds, uh, Daphne Queensland is uh, recommending the use of American thresholds can you go through those for us, please? Yes, Chris, I, I, no problems at all. We look at maize vegetative as uh, three or more larvae per plant with 50% of the plants having fresh feeding on them. And then you get into the world stage, which is 20% of the plants with one or more larvae. And it, it's in excess of 75% of plants with feeding. So uh, from the way Brent describes it, we might be well and truly there with some of those thresholds, Chris, for the future already. And then when you look at sweet corn, it's 15% of if infested plants is the tassel emergence uh, threshold for that particular crop. And then you've got sorghum vegetative, 30% defoliation, two larvae per whirl, and sorghum grain fill. We're going to use the same thing as we do for helicoverpa threshold calculators, which is works on amount of grain eaten versus cost of spraying and the, and the dollar value of the grain. Paul, there's lots of different pesticides that are able to be used against fall armyworm now via the permit system. That's got to be a good thing, though. Yes and no, Chris. Yes and no. I, I know when the permits came out, I was horrified that we're going to use some of the frontline defences we have for Helicoverpa armiger in a lot of parts of Australia on the fall armyworm. But of course, after listening to Brent there, we some of our older products that we considered that have quite a distance of resistance to Helicoverpa use them at will. But as Brent has just said, there's some of the old chemistry is not working at all, if not quite well at all. So we have to use some of the new chemistry to protect those crops up there in that stage. So yeah, we've got lots of permits and lots of products, but efficacy on those four lamy worm seems to be a real issue, Chris. Brent, what are people doing? Are they, some of the older chemistries aren't working so well, so are they hammering the newer ones? That's right. So based on previous experience up in the Atherton Tablelands, you know, discussing what they've been facing up there with, you know, we certainly gleaned very quickly that the older conventional insecticides that are, that are largely reliant on contact activity or ingestion and have a very short residual period, those insecticides didn't have very much efficacy against fall armyworm just purely because from egg hatch to in that young neonate phase and that sort of thing, you've only got a couple of days before they finish grazing on the leaf and then they, they steadily move towards that whirl and they burrow deep into the whirl. And then as they, they grow larger and they produce quite a bit of frass, they push that frass towards the top of the whirl there. And so it sort of insulates them as well, like a cocoon type scenario. So, and it's just another pathway that's blocked from potential access of insecticides as well. So, so definitely, you know, we were all feverishly waiting for the permits to come through, you know, for Aldercore and, and Stuart as well, Group 28 and Group 22 insecticide. 
But also, you know, on the other side of the coin, we were wondering, you know, once we get access to these insecticides in a crop that we've never used them before, and then by default, we're targeting Heliogaverpa with those two insecticides when conceptually or previously they would have been break crops for those insecticides from a resistance point of view. But now with fall armyworm coming in, it seems to me that the whole resistance strategy has kind of gone out the window, unfortunately. And we're going to potentially burn some really good actives, you know, if, if we're not really sensible about how we approach this going forward. I imagine what makes it even harder would be the fact that they're breeding continually. They're continually infecting the plants. Well, that's right. You know, given the temperature regime that we have here in the Burdekin on an annual basis, it's, it's not cold enough here for long enough to actually stop the moss. So even during our winter and that sort of thing, whilst we think it's cold up here, it's certainly not from a fall armyworm point of view. So we can quite easily have continuous life cycles of that of fall armyworm up here 12 months of the year. So with the length of some of these crops, with some of the corn crops that we're growing with CRMs of 117 days, 120 days to physiological maturity, we can complete quite a few life cycles of fall armyworm within the same cropping phase. So yeah, that's quite frightening because with the attitude against fall armyworm at the moment, you know, it's sort of like a, a paranoia at the moment. People want to spray and in some instances you've actually got to talk your clients out of spraying, which is quite a novel novelty for agronomists actually sitting down with the growers and actually and talking them out of spraying. So but yeah, that's the the sort of the paranoia that's associated with fall armyworm. Everyone is very, very scared of potentially what they can do from a yield reduction point of view and, and how quickly they can do it. And I suppose the flip side of that, Paul, is that if the more modern chemicals like Altacor uh, develop resistance to both fall armyworm and helicoverpa, then growers are going to be in a worse position. Oh, absolutely, Chris. And mm. this has been my position right from the from the get-go on, on hearing about fall armyworm. But as Brent just just quite brilliantly told us, uh, it, it's, it's a real problem up there and uh, and we need to have products to protect those crops up there or those farmers and uh, give the advisors something to use that's that's legal and registered. So, But you're dead right, and that's been my concern right from the, from the get-go, is that potential for uh, spreading more heliothus resistance with our frontline chemicals and even some of our backline chemicals getting worse resistance to those particular actives or mode of actions uh, for helicoverpa. But I don't know what we do with it, Chris. We face with an animal or a pest, I should say, in full armyworm that's come across a fair few countries. And what other resistance levels are they picked up on the way, Chris, is the other question for the future too. So so is there an answer? I mean, what would you be advising growers? And Brent, what, would, what are you sort of saying to growers that don't spray, but <laughs> how do you control them? Prior to fall armyworm coming here to the Burdekin, we've grown corn for quite a while up here during the winter phase, and it's you know quite a safe time to grow corn. And from a weather point of view, it's good, stable growing conditions. But we've been always been subject to high levels of Helicoverpa infestation in the corn, but we've never never sprayed for for Helicoverpa in the corn before, and still harvested very very respectable yields. You know, yields of up to sort of fourteen ton per hectare. So. But now that fall armyworms come to town, everything's sort of turned upside down and now everyone's quite scared, quite paranoid about the potential of of damage that they can do. And now we're spraying a lot. So now we're spraying, you know, potentially two times, if not potentially more in corn crops that historically never been sprayed with insecticide. Yeah. And that Alticor, is that the one you're spraying? Yes, that's right. At the moment we have under permit, we are allowed to spray 
two elder cores, two group 28s, and also we're, we're able to spray two stewards or two group 22s. So, and I, I know of, of some growers that have already gone through their two allotted group 28s, their two elder cores, and are now looking to switch into a group 22. So group 22s have had a longer history up here. You know, they've been on the marketplace longer than the group 28s. So with uh, extensive usage in not only grain crops, but also horticultural crops within the, the district, we're already carrying a base level resistance of around sort of 9 to 10% in Helicoverpa. And if we start splashing you know, those insecticides in more crops and exposing them to more generations, not, not only Helicoverpa, but also to fall armyworm, yeah, it's, it doesn't paint a very positive future for those insecticides. So, Paul, what, what is the answer? Surely there must be an answer out there somewhere. Chris, I, I guess the first thing is making sure that we are spraying fall armyworm when we spray it. As, as Brent so well said, you know, you need to identify them and make sure you've got the numbers and the thresholds that we, we're aware of, the best thresholds that we have. And we need a whole heap of research for all those sorts of things for sure in the future. We need to encourage other companies. There's a there's a virus they use over in America called Helogen. Yep. Forlogen, sorry, yes. got the wrong one. Forlogen. And I think that's a natural occurring virus, a bit like our NPV virus we use here for our helicoverpa. That's what we need to have here in Australia. Now, we can't bring it in from America for obvious reasons, but we need to develop one of our own. So I'd say research for thresholds, research for resistance, and developing of new products like Forlogen that we can use here in Australia on those particular insects that are giving us trouble. But, you know, the, the simple answer is there's no simple answer, Chris. I don't believe there is a, a simple answer. It's a lot bigger problem than we, what we thought we could have been. And as Brent said, you know, February and March, you thought, oh, yep, job well done. But it's really manifested itself. And, of course, it's got some good conditions up there. They get plenty of rain. They've got plenty of good green crops to grow things. And so moss could be everywhere laying there, a few hundred eggs, and here they come again. So it's, it's a bit of an issue, that's for sure. And Brent, you've only talked about corn. Any other crops that you're going to be on the lookout for? Because I imagine as numbers increase and the pressure for finding green feed increases, they could very easily move from one crop to another. That's right. Like we were saying before, you know, with the climatic conditions that are available to us up, up here, you know, we're going to get continuous life cycles of fall armyworm through the burdekin here. So we know that, you know, if we remove corn from the equation, that's not going to, to get rid of fall armyworm. So it's going to eat or attack whatever's, you know, next on its list of favourite things to, to chew. So we've already seen so far, you know, we grow quite a bit of irrigated grain sorghum through this, this late winter phase and we've got quite a few irrigated sorghum crops out of the ground at the moment that are sort of around that, that V3, V4 stage. And also during the wet season, we grow quite a lot of dryland sorghum during that summer phase, wet season phase. So when uh, fall armyworm came here into the Burdekin, that sort of thing in that March period of, of this year, you know, we still had quite a lot of late grown sorghum that were planted in late January, early February. And we're still in that vegetative stage and some of it, you know, was at that flag leaf stage. We could quite easily find fall armyworm in the vegetative stage in those sorghum crops. And that continued on through the late planted sorghum. And also it'll certainly be the case with this current crop that's in the ground at the moment that's still in, in that V3, V4 stage. We're starting to find a little bit of fall armyworm activity in those crops now. So mm. the interesting aspect of 
the incursions into grain sorghum was that whilst we could find fall armyworm during the vegetative stage of the crop, once the crop actually went reproductive and started flowering, and then we started, as we got grain formation, and we started checking those heads for helicoverpa and other larvae, we were only able to find two fall armyworm larvae in all the hundreds and hundreds of heads that we, we checked. So it was quite interesting that once the crop went reproductive, it seemed to be, these were crops that geographically, they were within a couple of kilometres of each other or even, you know, sort of 30 kilometres south of, of the Burdekin. So they were wide geographical spread and the trend was the same, that in all those crops we could find fall armyworm in the vegetative stage. But like I said before, we only ever found two larvae, fall armyworm larvae in the heads and they weren't from eggs that were laid on the heads. They were from larvae that had crawled up the stem up onto the head. So because they were quite large grubs at that stage, you know, relative to the development of the head, but also the developmental stage of the helicoverva that we were finding. So, and, and maybe that's just purely a numbers thing as well, Chris, I don't know. So, but that trend was quite evident all through the, the wet season sorghum crop, whether it be irrigated or whether it be dryland and across quite a large ge- geographical area. So, Maybe it was, you know, because during the wet season, you know, we're also carrying significant levels of annual grasses and perennial grasses, like roads grass, etc. And they obviously, you know, are quite a big sink in that for fall armyworm as well. So there's no doubt that they were carrying large numbers of larvae and harbouring large amounts of moss as well. But yeah, it was interesting. But also talking to some of the guys in Kununurra, where you know they were planting corn during that late summer period and harvesting through the winter, they found a similar trend in, in their corn as well. That the corn seemed to be highly attractive to fall armyworm in that vegetative stage, and the pressure seemed to drop off as the corn got into that reproductive stage. But still, you know, there was still reasonable pressure in that reproductive stage, but it certainly was noticeably less than in that early vegetative stage. And also, I've got a client there that's got some chickpeas next to his late crop of grain sorghum. And that grain sorghum, we were able to find fall armyworm in there. And initially, I thought I did find some fall armyworm larvae in the uh, chickpea crop. But one of the strategies that I use is that we always collect young larvae and take them back to the office and rear them up on a few leaves. And as they get larger, it's a lot easier to identify them. And they weren't fall armyworm. They actually subsequently turned out to be helicoverpa. So, you know, they can be a little bit confusing in that, in that early instar stage. And you've got to be very careful about your identification processes because once the grubs are, are large, it's quite easy to identify them, obviously. But, you know, we don't want to be um, identifying large grubs and, and trying to spray large grubs with insecticides either. So Yeah, well, they've already done a lot of their damage by then. Yeah, that's they? right. And also, yeah. you know, any, any sort of potential resistance mechanisms at that stage that they are carrying are quite well developed at that stage. Well, it's interesting, Brent, that you say that, that you're raising the young to identify them before that sort of three instar stage because, Paul, as we know, they are easy, relatively easy to identify at the six instar level, but harder to identify earlier. So I suppose it's a new skill set that growers and agronomists will need to develop. Yeah, definitely, Chris. It's it's one of those things that, you know, with our pulse courses, we always talk about identifying the insects properly that you've got in your crop. And I don't think it'd be any different with these fall army, but it might be a bit harder. And of course, you know, we're not used to them. They've come in with a bit of a rush. And as you, as Brent says, and as you've summarised, we need to be able to identify them earlier so that the chemicals we have can get in and control them earlier before they do any damage. Because trying to control uh, big grubs of any description, be it five star or six star from 
nearly go for soft fall armyworm is really, really difficult. And when it comes to spraying, I suppose the key is to know those numbers, to know those thresholds. One grub's not going to destroy a crop. No, it's not. And, and this is the other thing, I suppose, the other thing of scouting is plenty of footprints in the crop, isn't it, Chris? That's what we've talked about for years and years and years. And you need to be have good scouts and good scouting techniques to be able to go and do these jobs in these crops to see what insect you have, whether it's full armyworm, you know, false armyworm, which is another one that's around. You've got helicoverpa grubs also. So you need to have some eyes and some skills to be able to do the same and not to leave one paddock unchecked. That's an interesting point that Paul makes at getting out there, scouting around. Are growers needing now to go earlier into crops to just check things out? Yes, because the numbers of full armyworm are relatively low, and, and it's, it's a good point that, that Paul makes. And I suppose the example of that is in the pheromone traps, you know, we're catching only typically at the moment is around 35% of our catch on a weekly basis is actually full armyworm. So the pheromone isn't peculiar just to full armyworm, it's, it's catching false armyworm as well. And typically at the moment, you know, we're sort of around 65, 70% of our weekly catch is actually false armyworm. So there's a lot of moths out there that aren't necessarily full armyworm. And also when you're looking in a corn crop, you can quite easily find the resulting damage from fall armyworm but finding the actual egg clusters themselves because they clump like 50 to 200 or even possibly more eggs in a single clump a single female moth might lay 1500 or 2000 eggs so potentially that's only around sort of 10 spots or more that she might actually lay that entire volume of eggs on so whereas you look at the helicoverpa activity in these crops and they tend to spread their eggs over, over a larger area and obviously lay a lot smaller number of individual eggs and you see Helicoverpa moss flying during the daytime, whereas you don't see full armyworm moss flying through the crop during the daytime. They typically hide and come out on dusk or during the night. So the full armyworm eggs are quite hard to find and they're quite well hidden on the underside of the leaves in the top part of the canopy and through the middle part of the canopy, whereas Helicoverpa are quite openly laid on the silks and on the side of the stems or the, or the actual cobs themselves. So they're quite easy to find. But the percentages that we're catching in the trap, the numbers, whilst they, you know, can be impressive from time to time, the actual percentage of fall armyworm is relatively low at the moment. And, you know, as that builds, it'll be interesting to see how the, those dynamics in, in those crops change. But because the numbers are relatively small, there's many eyes that, that we can have in the paddock to identify potential hotspots because that's what we're dealing with at the moment is sort of hotspots within paddock because they lay a clump of eggs and then the, the larvae, when they hatch, they disperse from that initial clumping of eggs and they disperse to neighbouring plants. So you end up with a sort of like a, a sphere of influence of fall armyworm and sort of maybe might be a five metre radius that the, you know plants within that row are affected. And then you'll have nothing and you can have nothing, no fall armyworm activity for you know, 50, 60 metres down that same row length. And then you'll find another clump of eggs so you can certainly have aspects like that but also like I was alluding to earlier we've got some young corn at the moment where you know we've got 90 95 percent infestation within that row length so you know the densities are very high but even now after dealing with fall armyworm since March it's still need to be very very careful identifying those young neonates and young you know the early instars because they do mimic helicoverpa quite easily in those early instar stages. So Brent, 
We've talked about the difficulty of identifying the earlier in stars, but what about the older caterpillars? They're much easier to identify, aren't they? Well, yes and no, Chris. So, so everyone, you know, first talked about you know the inverted Y markings in the head area, and that feature does become quite prominent in that sort of third, fourth instar onwards, when the grubs are quite mature in that sort of fifth and sixth instar. You know, it is a very, very prominent feature. But the, the trouble is with that is that it's not synonymous with fall armyworms. So it's, it is shared by a number of other species. So it's it's not a mechanism that you should use on its own to identify fall armyworms. So also you've got, um, you know, everyone talks about the four large spots in a square formation on the, the back end or that, you know, on that in that second last segment on its tail. But that's also not necessarily synonymous with fall armyworm as well. So you see that feature on Helicoverpera as well, especially Armidura. And then as you move further up towards the head and that sort of thing, there's the, the four smaller spots in a, you know, like a trapeze arrangement. But once again, you know, that is not a unique feature to fall armyworm either. So the, what about all taken together? Yeah, all, all taken together, those three features, and also the colouring is, is probably one of the most recognisable features, is that the grubs, when they get large, they are large, they are quite fat, and also they're quite dark in colour, so they're a sort of a, a grey-brown colour, and they can be quite dark. There is some variation in colouring in that, but usually they are blackish grey to brown colouring, and they have those all those sort of distinguishing features. But what I also look for, you've got you know some striping of that down the back and then some darker lateral bands and parlor dorsal bands and that as well so there's a lighter striping of that down the back but then some quite dark lateral bands as well so if you got those in conjunction with the spotting on, on the tail plus the, uh, the trapeze arrangements and the inverted y and the coloring well then you're pretty confident that you've got full army work but in that younger in stars like neonates to first second and then also into that transitional third, they can be quite tricky and it's very easy to confuse them with helicoverpa and I'll put my hand up, I'm guilty of that. But what I always maintain that we do is that if we're not sure, you know, we take those grubs back to the office and we grow them out and make sure that we are targeting, you know, fall armyworm. But we don't automatically assume that every grub that we find is fall armyworm because that's definitely not the case. The easiest way to find fall armyworm in corn and sorghum is to look for that etching, that windowing effect, chewing on the leaves. And if you can find that on the leaf, and it's quite prominent, and once you've seen it a couple of times, you'll never forget that process. You can be extremely confident that if you've got that sort of etching, windowing effect on the leaf, that in the world of that grain sorghum plant or that corn plant, it's highly likely that you'll find a fall armyworm larvae. Brent, a lot of grubs move differently, as we know in the paddock, when you look at lupus and armyworm and, and helicoverpa. Do fall armyworm move any differently in those early stages than our other grubs you've got up there? When you compare them to helicoverpa, unfortunately, no. Their movements are very, very similar to helicoverpa in how they walk along the leaf. They do have a darker, larger head capsule that's unbroken in that young neonate stage and they are a little bit in that early neonate stage first instar stage they are a little bit more translucent than helicoverpa and they do have a, a slight pink coloring on their side flanks so that's 
that's an easier way to distinguish between helicovirpa and full armyworm. But typically looking at that head capsule that envelops the head, but then it, it sort of moves across you know, the neck area and it's all one large black mass where helicovirpa do have a broken patch there on, uh, between the head capsule and that neck capsule part they're not it's not one and also they're not as translucent as fall armor worms seem to be in that early neonate stage but yeah even to this day even after looking at hundreds and hundreds of fall armor worm grubs it's quite interesting to see how much variation there can be in, in some of the colorings it is easy to confuse yourself sometimes between helicoverpa and fall armyworm so everyone just needs to be really really careful make sure that they identify the species that is prevalent and apply the thresholds but also you know there's certainly instances where fall armyworm have been so entrenched in the world in corn that we've said well look it's too late it's no use spraying aldercore or stewing on these particular crops the growing point is a mile away from where the larvae are feeding so they're only doing cosmetic damage the crops are well fertilized well irrigated so they're growing quickly putting on a new leaf every three days so we're going to cop a bit of leaf damage for sure and it does look horrible it does look like a hailstorm has gone through your crop but they are grazing a long way from that reproductive tissue, that growing point. So in some instances, we just have to put up with the damage. Brent, for many years, people laughed at me with my magnifying glass. Would you like me to send it up to you, mate? Oh, <laughs> I admit that I was one of those early detractors that laughed at you, Paul. <laughs> and But as time has, has caught up with me and I permanently wear glasses and that now, not just for reading, but I also carry various hand lenses with me and my pockets are typically full of different strength hand lens, you know, 10 times and 5 times and, t- and 20 times. And I use them progressively during the day because you need to be able to identify accurately what you are targeting and like like we've discussed before it's very easy to confuse these different species but all because you we've got larvae it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to spray either so you've got to apply the thresholds and you've got to take a critical look at the crop stage what are the grubs impacting on you know are they doing economic damage or are they just doing cosmetic damage and if they're doing cosmetic damage we can tolerate that we've had some horribly chewed grain sorghum crops from fall armyworm with no resulting yield penalties at all. We haven't been able to find them en masse in the heads chewing on grain. So whilst that leaf area does get shredded, well-grown crops still aren't seemingly able to compensate for Brent Wilson and Paul McIntosh. My name is Chris Brown. And just a reminder about the other podcast in this series, including discussions with fall armyworm experts in the US and South Africa. Lots of good information on their varied experiences. This podcast was brought to you by the Plant Biosecurity Research Initiative, an initiative of the following R&D organisations. Cotton Research and Development Corporation, Forest and Wood Products Australia, Grains Research and Development Corporation, Horticulture Innovation Australia, AgriFutures Australia, Sugar Research Australia, Wine Australia and Plant Health Australia.